one of my favorite teachers that I've ever had, aside from my mom, was a man named Colin Smith. He taught the Bible and biblical languages and theology at the college that I attended. And I even changed my major so that I could take more classes with him. I volunteered for extracurricular activities that he led just so I could spend more time with him. And he was not just my professor, he was also my sister's pastor. My sister and I went to the same college and she sat under his preaching and shepherding care while she was at school. In short, he had a significant influence on my life, on my sister, and, and how I study the Bible. But it was announced in my junior year that he was leaving the school. That was heartbreaking for me and many students and faculty and staff. And I wondered what my senior year would be like without him. My experience, the school, and his church would all be different without him. Maybe you've experienced a loss like this and had to deal with the inevitable change that comes with these kinds of transitions. Maybe it was a friend that moved away or the departure of a, a pastor or a spiritual mentor or the death of a loved one. Transitions like this are often uncomfortable for us and change can be hard to process. How do you deal with the fear and uncertainty that comes with change? Jesus' disciples faced a similar time of transition, and the prospect of change charged their hearts with fear. So let's look at their experience together in John chapter 14. Please take your Bible and turn there. John chapter 14. If you're using the Bible in the pew, that's page 756. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was controversial to the point that his life was threatened on many occasions. And this was no secret. The disciples knew the danger and risks that came with following Jesus. But now, as we're in the second half of John's gospel, several alarming developments have taken place. In John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says that his hour has come. Now, his soul is troubled because of his approaching death. He says the light will only be in the world a little while longer and that darkness is coming. And he says a little more plainly in chapter 13, verse 33, that he will only be with them a little while longer. Even though they've spent some three years with him, he also tells them in chapter 13 that they're not going to be able to follow where he's going next. Can you imagine the sorrow and the fear and the confusion that they must have felt? Can you imagine having Jesus with you, talking with you, teaching you, listening to you, 
sharing meals with you for three years, and then to find out that he's leaving you. Now their hearts are troubled. And what would Jesus say to them in this moment? Well, let's listen together to John chapter 14, and we'll start in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that keepeth my commandments, and keepeth, he who hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. 
These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto my Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh, and hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. Well, the main idea of this sermon is that Jesus comforts our troubled hearts. Jesus comforts our troubled hearts. This chapter is mainly about Jesus' words of comfort. This is how the chapter begins and ends. Notice in verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. And he says again in verse 27, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus is speaking words of comfort to his troubled friends. And he's urging them to trust him. His encouragement to believe there in verse 1 is more about trusting Jesus with their fears than it is about affirming truths about Jesus, although it involves that. One way that we observe the fearful state of the disciples is in their questions. Did you notice how their questions pop up throughout this chapter? And they reveal, those questions reveal the anxieties that they have. These questions actually started back in chapter 13, verse 36, when Peter asks Jesus, where are you going? And then in verse 37, he says, why, why can't I follow you? Since their fears are encapsulated in their questions, we will consider Jesus' words of comfort in response to these questions. So there's three of them in this chapter. And the first question is in verses 1 through 7. And that question is, how can we be with God? How can we be with God? In verse 5, Thomas asks, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Now, the spirit of this question is not too far off from Peter's question just a few verses earlier. At root, Jesus' followers, they want to be with him. They want to go where he goes, and they want to have him with them. This is what being a follower of Jesus is about. Being a Christian is not about having a, a shared culture or heritage. Christianity is not basically about moral norms or public policy. Christianity is fundamentally a relationship with Jesus. 
And that's why the disciples and Thomas are troubled by Jesus' departure. Because they want to be with him. If, like Thomas, you want Jesus more than anything, Jesus has good words of comfort for you this morning. Jesus tells us that we can be with God because Jesus makes a place for us. He says this in verses 2 through 4, and Jesus uses the language of housing here to explain the work that he's doing. I remember hearing these verses as a young boy and thinking that Jesus was going to heaven to do some construction work. He's a carpenter after all, right? And I, I thought of heaven as a housing development with empty streets of gold that Jesus was slowly filling up with houses for his people. And in my mind, Jesus was being so personally thoughtful too because my mansion had a hockey rink in the backyard. The American dream had filtered into my reading of this verse. The word translated in verse 2 as mansions simply means dwelling place. And it's the same word used in verse 23, if you look down there, that talks about God abiding with us. That's the same word for mansions. So we would misunderstand what Jesus is saying here if, if we picture mansions in the modern sense of that word. Jesus is not talking about building each of us a huge, luxurious house in heaven. But what he is talking about is so much better than that. Because Jesus is saying, that he is making a place for us to be with God. And then in verse 3, he assures us that if he goes through all the trouble of making that place for us, that he will surely come back to get us so that we can be with him forever. This is the answer to the problem that we see all throughout the Bible that starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. That we are a sinful people, and because of our sin, we cannot be with God. We are cast out of his presence. And now Jesus is saying that he is making a way for us to be with God again. This is good news. Sometimes I think our sorrow is magnified because we don't look for hope any farther than the horizon of this life. We are looking for comfort and hope now in this world and in our circumstances or maybe, maybe just around the corner. We need to set our eyes on things above, on the life to come. So many of us know our dear sister, Betty Gask, and her husband, Bill. Bill struggled with cancer for many months. And this passage 
brought them so much hope. Because they were anticipating the hope to come. That they had a secure place with God. And that death could not take that away. And that they could even consider death to be gain, as Paul says. Because Jesus made a place for Bill. And for all of us who trust in Christ. This is how we find comfort in the troubles of this life. Dear brothers and sisters, this life is filled with trouble and with sorrow. But take heart. Jesus has made a place with, for you with God. And he will come again. Tears may be your companion now, but Jesus is your friend forever. And verse 2 tells us there is plenty of room in the Father's house. The dwelling place of the Father, it's not cramped. There are many rooms. If you've ever thought that maybe there could not be a place for you in God's house, think again. He will not turn away any who come to him in faith, but will say, welcome to my home. Welcome in my presence. But how do we get there? Thomas doesn't know the way, but Jesus tells him. Jesus answers Thomas directly with this beautiful and well-known saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way because of his saving work. This is what Jesus is referring to in verses 2 and 3 when he says that he goes to prepare a place for us. There is work that needs to be done for us to have a place with God. Specifically, our sins must be dealt with. And Jesus did that work. Not by swinging a hammer and nails to build us a mansion, but by receiving the blows of a hammer and being nailed to a piece of wood in order to take the punishment for our sins. That is how Jesus went to prepare a place for us. And that is how Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the truth because he is the full revelation of God. This has been the message all throughout John's gospel. Jesus is the word made flesh, the one who makes God known through his teaching and through his very person. And Jesus is the life and he gives spiritual life to all who trust in him. John's gospel is all about this spiritual life. John wrote so that you would know who Jesus is and so that you would trust him and have life in his name. And Jesus gives this life to all who believe in him. And there is no other way to God, Jesus says. He says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And he continues in verse 7 to say, 
that to know Jesus is to know the Father. You can't know the Father, you can't be with the Father, except through Jesus. This is first and foremost words of comfort to God's people. It is comfort for your troubled soul. Because Jesus is telling his disciples, they don't need anything else but Jesus. And they have him. And they know him. Jesus is sufficient for them to have a place with God. And Jesus himself is the only way to God. Do you doubt whether Jesus is enough? Do you believe in Jesus plus Jesus plus your best effort? Jesus plus your button-down life? Jesus plus your faithful family? If you believe in Jesus plus, you are going to despair when you don't have a faithful family, when you have a checkered past, or when your own efforts fall short. Putting your hope in Jesus plus is a recipe for sorrow and despair. To say it another way, if Jesus is your co-pilot, then you're in trouble. Jesus is everything. He is the pilot. He's the plane. He's the medic in the back of the plane that brought you back to life and keeps you alive until you get to your destination. Jesus is everything. And he is enough. Friend, if you're putting your hope in anything other than Jesus alone, turn away from that other thing. Turn away from that other person, that other philosophy, that other way. There is one way. It is a sure way. It is a true way. It is a life-giving way. Trust in Jesus alone and you will be saved and have a place with the Father forever. These are good words of comfort. But Philip wants something more. So we come to our second question. How can we see God? This question we see introduced us in verse 8, and then Jesus addresses it all the way through verse 21. In verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. In our trouble, in our distress, we often want to put our hope in something we can see, something that we can handle, something that we can touch. That can be a lot of different things. It could be a person, it could be a relationship, it could be a doctor, it could be medicine. Those are all fine and good things. Here, we see that even Jesus' disciples want to see something good. They want to see the Father. And they want to put their hope in that sight. I had a friend once who struggled in his walk with God. He was often weighed down with doubts. And what he wanted was a direct encounter with God. As I talked with him, tried to sort through, 
the struggles that he was having, the doubts, he thought that a divine experience of the supernatural would satisfy his doubts and that he wouldn't struggle anymore. Philip wants something similar. He's, he's looking for assurances. He's looking for something tangible that would satisfy their fears. And he thinks it would be a sight of God in his glory. And while Jesus doesn't give Philip quite the vision that he wants, he does comfort Philip by pointing him to where he can see God. So, first, Jesus says that we see God in Jesus in verses 9 through 11. There's a sense of sadness in Jesus' response when he says, have I, have I been so long with you and, and yet you don't know me, Philip? Now, of course, there's a sense in which Philip does know Jesus, but he does not yet know him fully. He has not grasped the fullness of Jesus' identity and the essential unity that Jesus has with his Father. And Jesus goes on to explain this unity, saying that the one who sees Jesus has seen the Father. Not because Jesus is the Father, but because Jesus is the express image of God in the flesh, as the author of Hebrews puts it. Jesus says earlier in this gospel that he does only what he sees the Father doing. And he only speaks the words that God has given him. And he says that again in the second half of verse 10 in this chapter. So do you want to see God? Look at Jesus. Jesus does the works of God and he speaks the words of God. And there's also a unity of being between the Father and the Son. It's not just that they do the same works, but there's a unity of being. Jesus says in verse 10, I am in the Father, and the Father in me. And he repeats that in verse 11. This is a kind of unalloyed claim to divinity that Jesus makes repeatedly through John's gospel. We see here that Jesus has a unity of work and words and nature with the Father. But he's also distinct from the Father. Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not Jesus, but they are both God. And these are the deep and glorious realities that we try to capture in the doctrine of the Trinity that we confessed earlier in the service. And that's not irrelevant academic detail. This is amazingly good news of comfort, because God is not elusive or hidden from us. God isn't playing games with humanity, giving some religions a little bit of himself over here and giving other religions a little bit of himself over there so that we never quite know, but we have a good hunch who he is. He reveals himself clearly in his word as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God came near through the person of Christ. And as we will see, he has come nearer in his spirit. What a comfort it is to know that we can have confidence and clarity about who God is. And we don't have to wonder about who he is. We know him. He has revealed himself to us because he loves us and wants us to know him. But there are other places that we can see God at work. Jesus tells us that we can see God in the works of his people in verses 12 through 15. Jesus says that those who trust him will do his works and that he will do even greater works 
Jesus starts talking about work in verse 10, where he says that the authoritative words that he speaks, that that is the work of God. And that that message draws out belief from those who hear. Jesus said something similar in John 6. In John 6, he's interacting with the crowds, and people say, what do we need to do to do the works of God? And Jesus tells them in John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him that he has sent. So in the context of of John's gospel, and in just the preceding verses here, the works that we do are proclaiming Jesus' message so that people believe. And this helps us understand why our works will be greater. Because Jesus, his message was often rejected and misunderstood. But as we see at the the end of verse 12, things are about to change. He says that our works are greater because, verse 12 says, because Jesus goes to the Father. In other words, Jesus' departure via the cross and resurrection are going to bring greater clarity to Jesus' message and draw out greater belief from those who hear that message. And that's exactly what happens. After the resurrection, the disciples understand what Jesus said that they didn't understand before the cross and the resurrection. And then, throughout the book of Acts, after Jesus ascends, people hear the message that the disciples are preaching, and thousands believe, and Christianity spreads far and fast. God is also going to do a great work in response to the prayers of his people. Jesus says in verses 13 and 14, that we can ask anything in his name, and he will do it. Now, we would read this wrongly if we read our selfish interests into this text. Jesus is not giving us a a blank check. A false teacher has said that she thinks of the Holy Spirit as the genie from Aladdin who grants your wishes. Not only is that wrong, but that will lead you into confusion and sorrow when that doesn't happen and things don't go your way. That message gives false hope and will not comfort your troubled heart. But Jesus says that we must pray in his name, which means in accordance with his purposes and not contrary to them. And Jesus says in verse 13 that he will answer for the glory of God. Now, none of those qualifiers diminish what Jesus is saying. Rather, they should embolden us because God's glory is not at odds with what's best for us. Jesus' purposes are what's best for us. And that's especially true because Jesus' purposes are to save sinners and to build up the church, which is exactly what you and I most desperately need. And it will, is what will bring us the greatest joy in this life and the next. And this is where we get to see God at work in this world. And we get to participate in this work. I hope you can see here that this work is what God does and does not depend on people. 
The power and clarity of the gospel comes because Jesus went to the Father after accomplishing his mission. And the power in prayer comes through Jesus' name and his own purposes in this world. And that's good news for the church. This is comforting to us. Because our success doesn't depend on people. Our success does not depend who's in the White House, or what laws are passed, or who's sitting on the judicial seat. And when cultural changes happen outside and inside the church, it can be tempting to think that the ship is sinking. Sometimes I get afraid when I think of what's going to happen when my favorite Christian leader passes off the scene. I still remember how sad I was, as I mentioned, when my, my favorite college professor left our school. And I, I won't forget his last chapel message was on Samson conquering the Philistine with a donkey's jawbone. And he said that if God can use a donkey's jawbone, he can use anyone, including you. But he doesn't need you. He can use a donkey's jawbone. He told us in that last message, when I was filled with sadness and anxiety, that he was just one professor among many. He was just one chapel speaker in a long line of chapel speakers. God can use us, but he doesn't need us. So brothers and sisters, none of these changes can stop God's purposes. And none of these changes can ultimately hurt us. As one of my favorite hymns affirms, through every change, he faithful will remain. So brothers and sisters, let us keep our shoulder to the plow trusting God and watching him work to save sinners for his glory. Third, we also see God work in the Spirit. Jesus is still addressing those ways that we see him working in this world. He says that we see God at work in the Spirit in verses 16 through 21. Though Jesus is leaving, another like Jesus is coming. Jesus calls this other the Spirit of truth in verse 17. He is given by the Father, he dwells with us, and in God's people forever. And the Spirit is given a special name in verse 16, where Jesus calls him the Comforter. This is a very special word, which means to call alongside. And it could appropriately be translated counselor, comforter, helper, advocate. All these words capture what is meant here. And this word is used of the Son and the Father, and the Spirit. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, If any man sin, we have an advocate. That's the word. An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's used of the Father in 2 Corinthians 1, 3. It says, Blessed be the God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. There's the word again. And here in John 14, 16, the same word is used to refer to the Spirit. The coming of the Spirit is one of the main comforts that Jesus gives to his fearful friends. He will speak of the Spirit again in John 15 and 16. This is whole discourse here. Jesus speaks often of the Spirit, and he speaks of the Spirit again in chapter 20 before he ascends to his Father. Do you ever feel isolated or alone in this world? When you feel alone, 
remember that the Spirit is with you. If you're a Christian, you can never truly be alone. Jesus says in verse 18 that he will not leave you comfortless, which could literally be translated orphan. Jesus will not leave us as orphans in this world without his care. He has sent his spirit to be with you. And one day, Jesus himself will come again. In the spirit's presence, did you notice how personal it is? He's not just with us, but he is in you. The spirit is in you, friend, if you are trusting in Christ. When you feel alone, remember that you are united to Christ. Jesus says in verse 20 that we are in him, and he is in us. This refers to that real unity that we have with Jesus. Our identity is unbreakably connected to him, and he is connected to us. Jesus considers us his body and regards an action done to us as an action done to him. And when you feel alone, Jesus encourages us to walk in obedience. In verses 15 and 21, Jesus says, that our loving relationship with God is experienced in the context of obedience to his word. We will not know love and assurance while we walk in sin and rebellion against God. When we love God with obedience, verse 21 says, we will know his love for us and God will show himself to us. So do you want to see God for assurance. Do you want to see something? Jesus says, look to me. Look at the work God is doing in this world. Look to the Spirit. This is where we find assurance in the face of fear. But the disciples have one more question in verses 22 through 31. That question is, what is Jesus doing in this world? What is Jesus doing in this world? Judas, not Iscariot, he's already left. Uh, Judas says in verse 22, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? So Judas doesn't understand Jesus' words in verse 21. How could God show himself only to his people and not show his power to everybody? See, the disciples expected that the Messiah would bring the kingdom in political power over all the nations and all at once. So how could Jesus show himself only to his people and not display his power and glory publicly over the whole earth? Jesus addresses his confusion by continuing to teach about his purposes in this world. He tells us that God is creating a transformed people in verses 23 and 24. God's coming begins in a transformed people. Jesus affirms again in verse 23 that obedience grows from a loving heart and it is into that loving, changed, transformed, obedient life that the Father and the Son come and make their home. Yes, Jesus will one day come and rule the nations with a rod of iron, but he first takes up residence in those whom he loves and who love him. These people are marked by a transformed life that embraces God and lives out his word. 
God is also creating a people of truth. We see that in verses 25 and 26. One of the main works of the Spirit was to remind the disciples of what Jesus had said. The writing of Scripture was not the mere product of men. Peter says in his second letter that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we are not a people who rely on a hunch, nor do we rely on the wisdom of men. God has given us his clear word on which we rest all our hope for this life and the next. And God is creating a people of peace in verse 27. One day, Jesus will bring peace into this world by conquering this world. But now, he has given peace to his people, not, not the kind of peace that the world has to offer, but Jesus' own peace. We now have peace with God being fully accepted in the beloved, fully accepted by our Father. And we know peace with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Though we will know conflict with the world, this community is a pay, place of peace with God and one another. And God is creating a people of the cross in verses 28 through 31. Jesus again speaks of his departure in terms of his ascension to the Father in verse 28. And that destination is a marvelous place. Jesus loves his Father, and his hand is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. And if we love Jesus, we should be glad that he is going to be with the Father. That's where we want to be too. But Jesus also alludes to the hard path that he has to take to the Father. He says in verse 30 that he will not talk with them much longer because the prince of this world is coming for him. Jesus will go to the cross. And he will go because he loves his father, and that is his father's will, verse 31 says. But he also goes for the sake of his followers. And he tells them in verse 29, that he's preparing them for these hard things that are about to happen. Because when he dies, they will despair. But he wants them to believe. As Christians, our entire lives revolve around and depend upon the cross. We have no claim on any of this comfort if Jesus did not sacrifice his own life in our place. You realize if Jesus were in this room and ascended to his Father without going to the cross, none of this would be a comfort to us. None of this would be ours. Without the cross, we have no peace, no love, no comfort, no comforter, no transformed life. Without the cross, all we have is a troubled heart. But Christ did go to the cross. He has died for us, and we have all the blessings that flow from Calvary. We have God's love. We have the Spirit. We have a sure word, and Jesus will come again. Just one year after my professor, Colin Smith, left our school, he died. I was shocked 
my sister and I traveled hours together to go to his funeral. I felt fear and uncertainty and sadness. There were questions I wanted to ask him. I'd asked him a whole bunch over three years. Questions I wanted to ask that I wouldn't get to ask him. His funeral was a surreal experience because he preached his own funeral sermon. Years before, he had preached in his church Psalm 16, and he said that he wanted that to be his funeral sermon. So there we sat, my sister and I, and a couple hundred other people being comforted by our teacher and pastor. But the comfort that he offered was not himself. He didn't say, trust in God and trust in me. He didn't say, remember all those wise things I said to you. He did not point us to himself. Rather, he pointed us to Jesus, to the Father, to the Spirit. He showed us from Psalm 16 that because of what Christ has done, our lot has fallen in pleasant places. And he taught us from Psalm 16 that in God's presence is fullness of joy, and with him are pleasures forevermore. This is our hope in life and in death. So let not your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in Jesus.